Hello, and welcome to Cringe Benefits, the podcast that's all about your very favorite things from childhood and your grown-up reservations about them. Today, I am talking to Nate Betancourt. Nate is an actor, writer, and improviser currently in Drunk Shakespeare Off-Broadway. He lives in Queens and is a fan of Robin Williams, true crime, and film noir, as are all of my favorite people. Hello, Nate. How are you today? I'm fantastic. I'm two cups of black coffee deep. Let's do this. Absolutely. Um, Nate, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. How old were you the first time you saw Ren and Stimpy? I was definitely five or six years old. Um, my routine as a kid was pretty regular where I would come up from school. There'd be a TV tray set up, uh, in the middle of the living room. Uh, four nights out of a week, we would have Kentucky Fried Chicken and I would watch Looney Tunes and the Nicktoons, uh, Nicktoon block that had, uh, Red and Stimpy, uh, Doug, uh, Rugrats, and Rock is Modern Life. Uh, yes. And let me tell you something. Like personally, I would say that my brain is like thirty percent Nick cartoons. To where every day, like at least once every day, like some weird quote pops in my head. Uh, and you know, being stuck inside for a couple months, like now, I'm just saying them out loud. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> on rewatching Ren and Stimpy, I realized, oh my gosh, like there's so many little mannerisms that uh, I picked up and have carried on even <laughs> 25 years later. I still, like, I had not watched it in, like, 25 years until I was preparing for this uh, this interview, and still the the log commercial just randomly pop into my head. It's, he rolls downstairs, goes over in pairs, is having your neighbor's dog. Like, just hours and hours of just random log cartoon jingling playing in my head. I like Red and Stimpy for me on on, on my side. Uh, I feel like it was definitely something that was more my older brother's thing than my thing. But because it was my older brother's thing, I wanted it to be my thing. Because like it's like the classic thing of being the youngest child that you always want to be perceived as older and like to be able to catch up and keep up with your older siblings. So if they were into it, like so many of my tastes can be directly traced to uh, my, my older brothers. Um, and Ren and Stimpy was definitely one of them, especially because... Uh, I remember very clearly that my mom was not a fan of Red and Stimpy. And let me tell you, having rewatched it recently, I thought, oh, I get that. I I see why you would not want your child watching this. It is, besides the times when it's just outright inappropriate for children, it's just fundamentally gross. Watching this once is fun. Having it on endless repeat in front of my small children who will then quote it ad nauseum, I can absolutely see why a parent would put the kibosh on this. Um, yeah. And it's such a, the textures and the design style, like that it's got this really uh, kind of idiosyncratic, specific um, sort of early 60s, late 50s aesthetic to it in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it's like, I, I was trying to find a, uh, a good descriptor for it, but like late 50s came in my head, not chromatic, but like, you know, you walk into that 50s diner, it's like, it has that kind of clean, yeah. shiny, but like oblong shape look. Um, yes. Like a, as a kid, I recognize like, oh, they're like, you know, Ren having like a hat and a, what he, no, he, he wear a fez, he sometimes wore a fez in a smoking jacket and smoked a pipe. Right. And I now smoke a pipe. And, you know, there's a couple episodes where they reference like smoking, like some characters are clearly like smoking cigars and I also smoke cigars. So upon watching this, I'm like, geez, like, I'm pretty sure Red and Stimpy didn't drive me to want to smoke because as a kid, I didn't notice when they had, you know, cigars or 
right. or whatever. But uh, watching it now, I'm like, oh, that's a cigar. That's a cigarette. Oh my goodness. My, my, my child, if I had a child, they couldn't watch that. They're going to think about smoking. But as a kid, I didn't even think about that. So you watched it as a kid. Do you remember, I mean, this is a question I don't usually ask, but do you remember when you sort of stopped watching it at all? Ooh, hmm. I think I want to say somewhere between seven, eight or nine, because then it was late 90s, you know, 1997, 98, 99. And Ren and Snippy, I believe, finished its airing in 96. And I think I might have moved over to Cartoon Network because then they had some other additional shows or maybe the Nick Block extended. Like sometimes I can't recall, um, you know, when I started watching SpongeBob, I think well, the SpongeBob debuted in 99. So probably around that time they had a new networking block. And yeah. I think that was, or at least it seems to me, because maybe I was older, was that that was like really starting to be like this, the second kind of golden age of um, of Nicktoons. No, you're totally right. You know, um, like 95 was pretty sweet because that's when it was, or, or, sorry, like 92 to 95 was pretty sweet because some of the, and correct me if I'm wrong, is some of the cartoons that they had on Nickelodeon were also being shown on MTV. And MTV, even though they showed cartoons, they, they still showed things like Beavis and Butthead, which... I would not say is a children's cartoon. It's definitely more no. for like teens and adults. I, you know, I can't speak to that because MTV was one of those shows that for most much of my childhood was blocked in my house. Like I, I don't, I don't know what the, um, what, what the, 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 the MO was for deciding which channels were blocked in my house. Cause we, we couldn't have MTV. We, for some reason, weren't allowed to have the Disney channel, but we could have Nickelodeon and we could have like Fox. So it was weird. I was allowed to watch The Simpsons, but like I missed so much early Disney programming because we just didn't have that channel until I was maybe 13, 14. Um, but that said, yeah, there was certainly a golden age of Nicktoons that came like 91 to, to 95. I would say probably directly under due to the influence of head of animation at that time, uh, Vanessa Coffey, who uh, was really like the the producing mother of Doug, you know, the original Doug, the good Doug, um, Rugrats. And I have strong feelings about Doug. Don't laugh at me. I have strong feelings. <laughs> I, I just, I realized I never knew that Doug switched production teams until later on. And I was like, what did they do to Doug? It looks oh. so different. And something that I also didn't uh, realize until I started digging into... Um, at the beginnings of those shows is that Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy all debuted on the same day on the same year, August 11th, 1991. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, well, these are different shows and kind of in different times, but I did not know they all came out the same day. Yeah. Like, oh, is this like the new wave of cartoons now, which became more creator driven? Yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. So, so the information I'm about to spew comes directly from uh, watching Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy last night. So this is information kind of filtered through uh, the perspective of the animators of Ren and Stimpy specifically, as well as Vanessa Coffey, who's interviewed in that movie, um, which is what they w what their perspective was, was that up until 91, that, that Nicktoon debut, um, cartoons, like children's cartoons on TV were very much the late, 80s uh, Saturday morning cartoon genre where the animation was pretty crappy. All of the scripts were written by committee. Um, every 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 cartoon had to 
have some sort of educational moral and also had to sell a toy. So they were basically like these kind of uh, saccharine, corporate, manufactured, uh, 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 entertaining advertisements. And the animation was very... um, was very I don't know what the word is for it. It was very flat. It was very unartistic. It was and so what John Kay specifically says he wanted to do uh was he he grew up on um Clampett animation and Chuck Chuck Avery animation or excuse me Tex Avery animation, Chuck Jones animation, you know, like the really good golden age 30s 40s animation where everything was art, everything was hand painted and hand drawn and uh it comes from that genre of using classical music and classical opera scores and all of this stuff and that's what he wanted to bring back but yeah i was also surprised to learn that not only that those three came out the same day but that uh those three were the 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 ancestors of everything that nickelodeon would become i mean i'm gonna go out on a limb and call these the the first nicktoons definitely the first like they were formative for my childhood, although weirdly, Ren and Stimpy less so than Doug or Rugrats were. Um, and then you have that whole golden age with Rocco's Modern Life and Ah, Real Monsters and uh, transitional shows like um, As Told by Ginger and Rocket Power and Angry Aww. Beavers. Yeah! Angry Beavers. Is- Angry As Told Beaver. by Ginger. As Told by Ginger is so good. She's the feminist icon for our times. So so yeah when when we were kids there wasn't really if it wasn't if it wasn't on TV there wasn't really a way to see it like we were probably the last child generation before you could just go look it up on YouTube and watch it over and over and over again so once Run and Stimpy fell off the airing block of course you were watching other things mm-hmm. when 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 did you first come to it come back to it as an adult I think uh, probably through the magic of YouTube or um, there was a block where Nicktoons had a slot at, was it not, was it Nick at night? They started Maybe. replaying all the classic, um, you know, night mid nineties cartoons, oh, or it man. could have been very like, not too recently, but in high school, they had the, uh, the channel uh, Nick. Was it Nick rewind? Yeah. That yeah, I I can't tell whether that was the name of it or whether that's just what I would name it if I were in charge. There, I think that might have been, but in any event, it was at 10 p.m. on this channel. They would show all like the classic cartoons, and Amazing. I appreciated it because for anybody that watches Rocco's Modern Life, they were really slick. Yes. They said on eight, like on um end of March, like March uh, 31st at midnight, they're gonna air a secret cartoon of, of Rocco's Modern Life. And I'm like, oh, shit. So I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, years later, why is nobody talking? I sit down, midnight, March 30, 30 days, Twitter. And midnight at the end of March, it's April 1st. It is the Mayo commercial played for 15 minutes straight. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> this is April Fool's. It's April Fool's, you sons of bitches. Um, damn it if I didn't appreciate it. So anyway, oh, man. I went on a Rocco's tangent and thought about Mayo. Um, Listen, but, you, you, no, no, no. You're always allowed to go on a Rocco's tangent with me. Rocco is evergreen and forever. And Rocco, like, Rocco did a lot of the same things that Ren and Stimpy did, but more refined in that it, it did this, it, it, it did similar 
random gross out humor and very adult things like fucking really really big man and his nipples of the future um and jokes about it's- filbert and uh and 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 doctor oh what was her name doctor hutchison H- hutchinson hutchinson yes filbert and dr hutchinson and how they had their children just really grown up things it just did it like smoothly <laughs> and more subtly so that it could get away with those things without hitting you in the face the way Ren and Stimpy did. But Ren and Stimpy, definitely the herald of lots of shit we're seeing in animation now, both in styles, in art panels. There's art in SpongeBob SquarePants that is so directly referential to Ren and Stimpy, it's just crazy. And also to the the barriers in subject matter and sort of non-sequitur adult humor that is now uh, prevalent in children's animation and adult animation mm-hmm. uh, i would I, I don't know if it's if cartoons before did an attempt to kind of blend uh you know humor for kids and like slightly innuendoish humor for adults um i definitely agree that like you know rocco's rocco handed it a little more sophisticatedly and it, you know even movies later on which i'm sure if i like shrek is mm-hmm. a, a great example of like kids humor humor for adults and it's not like oh, i would not let my child watch this or i would question my, right, my right. child watching this um but the, definitely the influence it had on other animation series uh like on rewatch i realized that uh their mouths like whenever a character has i don't know how to describe it uh, your mouth is normally horizontal <laughs> normally horizontal but um they flip it so that it's like a, a downward u-shape that was it seemed to be unique to Ren and Stimpy, but I noticed it a lot in Rick and Morty, which yes, is another big I had the exact thought. same thought. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Totally, oh, totally. And I, and I think uh, Dan Harmon uh, might have said, oh, well, influenced by Ren and Stimpy. So it's like you still see even now on a behemoth of an animated series what they kind of take from predecessor, predecessors and uh, develop animation later on, which is very rich. Um, What's interesting about that is that, you know, uh, for all that it is very clear that Red and Stimpy was influential and 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 revolutionary, Red and Stimpy were also very much standing on the shoulders of giants. Like if you put them in the context of the whole history of animation, about which I do not pretend to be an expert, but uh, I've watched a lot of TV. Uh, if you If you put them in that context, you can definitely see what was influencing them and where they stand on the continuum. Um, they were certainly not the first animation for adults because the classic Looney Tunes cartoons, which were run as shorts before movies, those were historically for adults. They weren't meant for children. Um, uh, Bugs Bunny, which you can you can see, especially in early Bugs Bunny cartoons, where he's just constantly mugging and referencing uh, movies that were contemporary to his time, the amount of time he spends cross-dressing and trying to seduce Elmer Fudd. Like just, it's all very, uh, it's it was all pitched at adults. Um, I'm not confident in what era exactly cartoons became for children specifically. Um, if I had to guess, I would say 50s, 60s. And you can see that in the style of Ren and Stimpy in, in that the style of Ren and Stimpy's is so is so 50s, 60s inflected and has in a lot of instances a lot more in common with uh, the animation styles of uh, Sherman and Peabody and, 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 and uh, Huckleberry Hound than it does with an earlier uh, uh, Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny type of thing. 
You know, I actually had an, uh, an observation on that, and this kind of gets into mid to late season four of Ren and Stimpy, where there's actually a couple times, and by by this point, season three, season four, uh, John, uh, Chris Felucci is, is he yeah. no longer in the show. Uh, but season four, we see uh, two characters come up that are Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. Uh, one of them in uh, season four, episode nine, I uh, think Aloha, Aloha Hoek, the Due Machina was Ren drowns at sea. They play Moonlight Sonata, which sounds amazing. And then right. as Stimpy screams up to the heavens, uh, an alarm goes off and it's quitting time. And it's actually these two supposed KGB agents. There's a sub that comes up with like a, a red, um, what you call it, symbol in the background. Um, and mm-hmm. they call each other comrade. And I'm like, that's Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. But they don't actually say those names, which kind of made me th- wonder if there was a relationship between games animation and Hannah Barbera. Because in my mind, I'm like, that seems to skirt a little bit of, you know, copywriting problems. I mean, they don't say Fred, they don't say Barney, but like, it sounds like them. It looks I mean- like them. I think even in the games animation era, uh, the sort of again ethos of uh, Red and Stimpy was Ooh. very much one that wanted to that wanted to stick its middle finger up at like classic animation of the time. And Hanna Barbera was one of their. I I would not be surprised to learn that Hanna Barbera was one of their regular targets. Um, so really quickly, when we talk about games animation, um, Red and Stimpy was developed. Uh, between Nickelodeon and uh, John Crickfalusi and his uh, animation studio, Spumco. Um, sometime in the beginning of season two, uh, John Kay uh, developed some very just arrogant diva-esque behavior and uh, also uh, was kind of a logistical nightmare because he couldn't delegate. His perfectionism kept him from releasing episodes that should have been finished. But like, for instance... Things would be shopped out to his animators. They would finish it, but then he would demand to go over it himself and often redo all of their work. And so uh, the show was going wildly off schedule and wildly over budget. Uh, and he refused to take uh, he refused to take network notes. And at one point was communicating with the network only through his lawyer. It became very antagonistic. So ultimately, uh, John Kay and Spumco were fired from Ren and Stimpy. And uh, Nickelodeon hired uh, sort of John K, one of John K's second in commands, Bob Camp, to finish the show under their own animation studio, Games Animation, which later became Nick Animation Studios. So when we talk about Spumco and games, that's what we mean. Um, all of which uh, kind of, I mean, kind of, but not really, but I'm going to force this segue anyway. Nate, when did you realize that Ren and Stimpy was, was problematic? A little bit on, you know, random YouTube videos, finding something to do. Um, I was considering getting Rocco's Modern Life on Prime, and I did because it's really only $5 a season. And now I just mm-hmm. plugged a capitalistic nightmare. But, you know, upon looking at YouTube videos, I was like, wow, was, this seems so angry. Like, ooh, this is a little kind of disturbing to think about it now. But I didn't realize it was very problematic until three weeks ago. Um, when you emailed me about certain details that went on um, in the production side, which as a kid, you don't care about the production side. I remember uh, sometimes watching some episodes, they play the theme, um, 
which is called Dog Pound Hop. As the kids say, it's very much a bop. It slaps. Um, <laughs> it's a great theme. Um, but I do have a memory of watching some episodes and hearing the end of the theme, the bam. And sometimes I remember before it does the final bam, it goes to a slide of uh, characters created by John Kay. Mm-hmm. But then on season three and four, they don't do that bang and switch to, to that slide. And I remember as a kid going, like registering that like, oh, something's something's different. I don't know. Yeah. And later on, you're like, oh, maybe they just changed the title screens or whatever for time. And then I remember season three and four would have uh, the, the final end title card would be games animation and it's Stimpy dressed as like a milkman. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as a kid, I'm like, oh, there's Stimpy as a milkman. Or like, I remember thinking like, oh, is the end of this episode going to have that funny photo of Stimpy as a milkman? Like, yeah, didn't yeah, think yeah. about it. Um, and then of course on rewatch, I'm like trying to pay attention to who the directors were, who the background colorists were and seeing how the credits really kind of shifted and yeah. changed to where season three and four, the only time you really see John Kay's name is at the very end created by, uh, John Crickfalusi. Um, mm-hmm. and then. That's the end of it. Um, yeah. Well, so tangent on that, like another sort of thesis of of happy, happy, joy, joy, which I'm going to bring up a zillion times in this interview because I just watched it and it's uh, not a great documentary, really, like in terms of documentary filmmaking. And it's kind of biased, but it is still very informative about a lot of subjects. So something that these animators, uh, that John Kay in particular and sort of... Uh, the other animators on the show uh, support is that the idea that uh, before Ren and Stimpy, it was not common for cartoon shows to display a created by title card. And that fighting for that created by title card is what really turned cartoons into an auteur form, quote unquote. Um, yeah, right. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the skepticism in my voice because the thing is, they 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 talk at great length about how before Ren and Stimpy, there were no created by title cards anywhere. Um, maybe, but Doug and Rugrats came out on the same day, and they also have created by title cards, and they also tell us who the storyboard editors are, and they also tell us who the directors and the writers of the cartoons were. So it's possible that Ren and Stimpy that Spumco spearheaded that request and then Nickelodeon decided to apply it to its other Nicktoons, maybe? Um, point being, it was very important to John Kay uh, as the creator of this show that everybody know that he created this show, that like the the artists, that, that, that everyone know that Ren and Stimpy was not just a property of this network the way Captain Planet was a property of its network, the way that G.I. Joe was a property of its network. He wanted people to know that Ren and Stimpy was created and drawn by artists. Um, and that's absolutely an uh, in, in influence that carries on through the way we view animation now. We know what a Matt Groening show looks like. We know what a Jendi Tartakovsky show looks like. We know uh, 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 Dexter's Lab and Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack. Uh, we know all of those things. Um, yeah, uh, I was... Conscious of the change in uh, creative powers behind Ren and Stimpy, again, because I had older brothers and my older brothers, my eldest brother in particular, was a, a hipster from birth. So he knew 
that John Kay had left the show and he was convinced that the show was not as good now that John Kay had left, which is kind of the prevailing wisdom. I disagree. I disagree as well. Thank you. I actually think it's a tighter show and a, a more efficient show after John Kay leaves. The art changes subtly in that it's perhaps less detailed and there are less of those beautiful paintings per episode. But especially knowing what went on behind the scenes, it's like I'm I'm willing to sacrifice that for what's still an excellent cartoon where people were probably less likely killing themselves over pleasing, you know, the the creator. You know something? I, I think I upon rewatch, I barely notice a distinct difference between seasons one and two when John Kay was on and season three and four when credit to Billy West for not only doing yes he then took over ren i don't hear a difference and and as a kid i didn't notice either and bless him i hope he got paid i hope he got paid well and uh, you know we might talk about this a little later but he also turned down um doing the ren and stimpy adult party cartoon which don't don't even bother watching it is an absolute travesty that aired on spike tv when they um, wanted to make ren and stimpy for adults so it just kind of added nudity and very poorly executed innuendo. And I'm looking at the trivia of it. And John Kay comes back because he wants to, you know, bring back Ren and Stimpy, but he wants to do it for adults. And that is a, another can of worms that we'll eventually talk about. But yep. credit to, to Billy West for, you know, your voice act. You can do whatever you want to pay the bill. But to know that he still had the, the that he had the respect and, uh, you know, knowledge of, of these, of, uh, Stimpy specifically, because he was asked to come back and voice Stimpy, which he refused to do, that he kind of knew like, no, this isn't really how I want to give voice to this character. And major uh, props to him. Wasn't, uh, was Futurama happening in 2003? I have no concept of time anymore. Uh, Maybe that was a little before. Uh, Futurama, I I want to say was early 2000, no, uh, 99 to 2013. Yeah, that's right. Run. That's right, because the first episode takes place in the year 2000. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Billy West was at the sort of the height of his, what I would consider the height of his voice actor powers, because he was on Futurama as Fry and Professor Farnsworth and like every third voice on that show. He didn't, he wasn't hurting for money. So I had forgotten that there is a 2003 Ren and Stimpy reboot. Uh, fill in the gaps for me. Apparently, Spike TV wanted, <laughs> Spike TV wanted to uh, wanted to start an animation block, and they got John Kay on board to reboot Ren and Stimpy. And they ordered eight episodes, but they pulled it off the air after three. Thank God. I remember. I think I saw the first one, and I no sir, I didn't <laughs> like it. That's <laughs> a, a Mr. Horse quote. Oh, well, yeah. I love um, it. I love Mr. Horse. Right. <laughs> uh, we'll get into that in a second. Um, but yeah, the, the the adult party cartoon is... John Kay talks about it on a special features DVD of Naked Beach Party that is on a DVD special mm-hmm. features of uh, Ren and Stimpy adult party cartoon. And that we'll, we'll dive into. Um, but it, it was, the description was, oh, well, um, in John Kay's words, it says that the head of, um, animation at Spike TV said, oh, well, you know, this is a man's network. So, you know, you have to cater to men. Um, and it was just, it, it, it was very gross. It 
definitely made no uh, secret or it just it said Ren and Stimpy are a homosexual couple and we're going to show this to you physically. We're going to show it to you graphically. Um, it, it, it really was very it didn't have any taste. The adult party cartoon just that it wasn't a joke as much as it is. <laughs> Ren and Stimpy are gay. They're really gay. <laughs> and it's just poorly, poorly executed. With the disclaimer, well, with the disclaimer that I have not seen adult party cartoon, and I uh, am probably almost certainly not going to, but the way you've described it to me, it sounds very much like it's falling into that really immature sort of frat boy logic of uh, playing homosexuality as a joke. Like it is funny for men to love each other, and that is, I I don't have to explain how that's problematic. Um, especially because in the original run of Ren and Stimpy, it was, uh, it, I, I'm not suggesting that it wasn't alluded to as a joke in the original run of, run of, of Ren and Stimpy, but the joke was that you couldn't tell, uh, which kind of falls into this long heritage of um, uh, uh, male duo in clown, out clown couples. Like for a minute, I was thinking of Ren and Stimpy as a proto pinky and the brain, which happened just a couple of years later. But really that, does a disservice to Laurel and Hardy, to Abbott and Costello, to the Honeymooners, to the Flintstones, to just this, it's, 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 uh, to fricking Didi and Gogo from Waiting from Godot, to this, uh, long heritage of, um, just the comedic value of, uh, the in-clown and the out-clown who are in a codependent relationship. Um, yeah, it's totally recognizable and common uh, for this, there, there to be these these sort of codependent, these 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 uh, codependent relationships with uh, homo romantic subtext just bubbling under the surface, and it's worth asking the question of why are we laughing at this? Are we laughing because it's funny for two people who profess to hate each other to secretly love each other, which is Honestly, that's that's fine. That's what Much Ado About Nothing comes from. That's what um, Tammy, uh, well, Taming of the Shrews, another bucket of problems. Uh, that's what Much Ado About Nothing comes from. That's what uh, happens in Pride and Prejudice. The enemies to lovers trope is always funny and compelling. But if the joke is, and they're gay, then it becomes an issue. Uh, agreed. Uh, the other thing that I notice is in that trope, if let's say it's uh, physical humor where a lot of like 80% of the time in episodes where Ren gets mad is he hits Stimpy or he mm -hmm. strikes him. And of course there's the visual gag, but the one thing that I can appreciate regularly throughout the run is that the pain, like if Stimpy gets hit, it's never painful. It's like, you know, he'll, he'll have like a silly expression on his face. He gets slapped. It's the same expression. Yeah. Um, it's cartoon violence. Yes. Cartoon violence. Um, there's even a cute little episode where Stimpy joins the sidekick union and um, mm. he he asks Ren for permission to hit him, and I'm, and I was like, well, that's a surprisingly you know refreshing take on on uh, their relationship, and it's I think season three, season four, um, and then there's one episode where Stimpy gets mad at Ren, and I think it's the only time in the episodes that I saw where Stimpy strikes Ren, but it is so comedically low impact, like he, it's literally just like right. Like a, like a, a light slap tap yeah which which watching that now i'm like <laughs> I, I lost my shit when i saw that because it was actually really <laughs> funny for stimpy to be the one you know you flip it on its head and stimpy's the one who's enraged instead of like slapping him it's just a light, light little 
three little claps. So stupid, so funny. It's like, that's Stimpy losing his mind. <laughs> totally. This podcast is sponsored in part by Audible. Confession, I have had a full-on case of reader's block pretty much continuously since March of 2020. On top of that, after a full day of working from home, complete with Zoom calls, sound editing, spreadsheets, graphic editing, and hours of staring at my computer, the idea of relaxing by staring at another screen doesn't sound relaxing. Lucky for me, I can find the perfect entertainment and escape through Audible, with thousands of titles spanning audiobooks, theatrical recordings, guided meditations, and more. Audible has something for pretty much any mood and any moment I might find myself in. Listeners of this podcast can get a free 30-day trial, meaning one free credit to spend however you'd like, by going to audibletrial.com slash cringebenefits today. For a fanciful escape from the world outside your window, I recommend you check out Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. It's a Eastern European take on traditional Germanic fairy tales, but with some badass heroines who aren't afraid to get fucking angry. Seriously, it is wonderful. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash cringebenefits to start your free trial today. So let's, we've, we've put pins in a couple of things at this point as things we're going to talk about later. I'm going to say that later has come. Let's really dive into what's like, what's, what's cringy about this property. So a, a few weeks back, uh, when I invited you on the show, you said you wanted to talk about Ren and Stimpy. And I said, yeah, I have a lot to say. And I sent you uh, the article that BuzzFeed News did a couple of years ago about Robin Bird and Katie Price. Uh, you had not read this article at this time. Is that correct? That is correct. Hadn't, hadn't heard a word about it. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to include a link to this article in the show notes uh, so that uh, listeners can read into this in detail. But uh, allegations were made by these two women who, uh, when they were each teenagers, uh, young teenagers, off the top of my head, Robin Bird was, I believe, 14. They wrote fan mail to John Kay uh, around the time just after he had left Ren and Stimpy. And John Kay started writing back. And they both got into some very uh, emotional, romantic, uh, uh, long-distance correspondence with John Kay. Uh, and they had initially contacted him not only because they were fans, but because each of them wanted to be animators. Um, so for Robin Bird, she, uh, you know, she would send him letters. He would send her pictures. He started flirting with her. She started flirting with him, which, again, when you are a teenager, that's not consent. Teenagers can't offer consent to men who are well over 30. That's just not a thing. Um, and when she was 16, he invited her to move in with him in Hollywood as an intern at a Spumco, which her mother consented to, which I have great questions about. So she moved in with him as his live-in girlfriend and as an intern at Spumco, when she was 16. Uh, her whole life was jo was dominated by John Kay. She talks about the relationship at some length in Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, and it is uh, a, a textbook emotionally manipulative relationship between a pedophile and a child. And uh, at one point, she decided to take a contract at another animation studio and uh, to, to get some space. And after that was done, she came back to Spumco and John Kay had moved in Katie Price. Uh, Katie Price, another 
teenager who was in a long distance romantic relationship with John Kay, uh, the allegations, the details of which are gone into in great uh, detail in this article that I previously mentioned, um, it's some extremely troubling, disturbing textbook uh, pedophile grooming about which John Kay has admitted to having had a 16-year-old girlfriend in the 90s and said that it, ex- it was a, in, in a, a lapse in judgment due to his mental health at the time, um, which is not the apology you want to see. Oh, it's not an apology at all. It's uh, It sounds like poor me. Well, I mean, it sounds like, well, anyone could, you know, have a bad day and date a teenager. Um, do you, Nate, off the top of your head, do you know how old he was in the 90s? Because I'm not sure I do. I, th- I want to say late 30s, early 40s. Um, it's, uh, da, 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 da. it's actually in, a little bit in the article, uh, met. Robin Bird in 96 when she was 15. I believe he was in his mid to late 30s. Um, Gross. And then he started speaking to um, Katie Rice in his early to mid 40s. Katie Rice. Thank you. I think I was I think I was calling her Katie Price for a minute there, who is a completely different person. Katie Rice. Thank you. Um, I don't have any formal training in uh, law enforcement. One of my hobbies is uh, true crime and forensics. Um, and I do my best to, whatever I learn, it's from uh, people that are trained in the field. Um, I've attended uh, two conferences where they have law enforcement officials come and speak on a variety of things. Uh, one of the topics was the Netflix documentary Abducted in Plain Sight. Oh, God. And oh, it's Jan- so disturbing. Yes. Uh, and Jan Broberg herself spoke, and she uh, mentioned several things in there that I notated um, about grooming. Uh, and grooming is a way for um, adults to try and gain the trust of someone uh, underage for nefarious purposes. Um usually for to abuse them sexually um, in the description of what Katie and Robin describe in the article are behaviors by someone that is interested in post pubescent girls. Cause I'm not going to say women. I'm not going to say underage women either because the term underage women is a way to offset uh, the fact that anyone who was below 18, according to the state is a child. They're not an adult. Yep. So, um, and I, I think it might also be helpful to note that anyone who is attracted to prepubescent um, children is considered a pedophile. Anyone who is attracted to postpubescent um, to uh, up towards eighteen is a hebophile. And I and I hope I have those two uh, things um, separated and described directly. Um, mm-hmm. It is a crime either way. Yes. Oh, it it is a crime. It is a serious crime. Um, In the early 90s, I'm not sure what the attitudes were um, to adults having friendships with with children, but I wanted to share some things that I learned from the uh, abducted in in plain sight talkback. 
Um, and there's different stages of grooming. One of them is called targeting, uh, mm-hmm. which is where uh, the offender and the child will have a shared common interest. Either they go to the same church, uh, they like the same movies, they, pl- they play the same games, they like the same uh, animation series on TV. Another stage of grooming is called gaining trust, where then the uh, offender and the child will uh, begin to have more one-on-one conversations. Um, an offender might give someone their email or their phone number in order mm-hmm. to establish a, a connection that's just between uh, the two of them to sort of focus their attention uh, to that child. Um, the other is isolation, which is either you know having meetings uh, one-on-one with the person, physically flying them from their home state to another state to spend time with them um, for an extended amount of time. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not sure if this is a, a, a formal block of it. The other one is uh, sexualization and weaponization, which mm-hmm. is uh, if at that point the, the offender has gained the trust of the child, they may act upon um, their sexual desires to the child, which is abuse. It is mm-hmm. not consensual sex. It is abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, if for, I'm not, if for whatever reason an offender decides to record the activity via photos or videos, that is not child pornography, that is child sexual abuse. Um, pornography is legal, taking pictures of underage people is not. Um, and once, let's say that line has been crossed and, um, you know, if, if a sexual, um, if sexual acts happen, the offender can weapon, can use that and weaponize that against, against the child and say, well, listen, you can't tell your parents about this because you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. And that begins a way of exerting control over the child. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, the, the, the child is a victim. They, they have gone through immense trauma even before there was any uh, sexual activity. Um, and that leads to the offender trying to maintain control um, and, and keep a relationship um, with the victim. Um, we've seen this several times with um, Michael Jackson um, after, you know, allegations years have happened, the um, children that have said that they were molested by him grow up, he reaches out to them and says, listen, um, if the law, if anyone comes to talk to you about some allegations, don't talk to them. Oh, Jesus Or even Christ. after the adult has grown up, the offender, regardless of whether or not, whether or not the 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 per, the victim was before 18, after 18, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Grooming can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, adults can be groomed, which you brought up um, the parents giving consent for their child to go to see uh, John mm-hmm. Kay in mm-hmm. his place of work. And of course, we think to ourselves, how could the parents allow that? I thought the same thing uh, in Abducted in Plain Sight, where how could the parents go along with this? And it's not just the, again, it's not just the child who gets groomed, it's the adults. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, high profile celebrities, if they have been uh, accused uh, of horrible crimes, people who may not know the details of said crimes are more inclined to believe the celebrity because in a way, the world could be groomed uh, by someone's actions. It could go from the child to the parents to the entire world. You know, I, I'm gonna bring back Michael Jackson where it's mm-hmm. a lot of people will say, oh, MJ's not guilty. No, he never admitted to it. Nothing happened. But they may not know a single thing about the case. They may not. They may not have heard anything from the victims. To them, it's no. It's it's all about the music, and there's no way it, that you could do that. Right. But coming back to to 
John Kay, one of the best examples of this is in a short DVD excerpt from Ren and Stimpy's Naked Beach Party that features, and I want to make sure I have the correct notes here. Um, it is essentially a, a painful four and a half minute clip of, uh, sorry, just one second. Got to scroll mm -hmm. past a bunch of stuff here. Okay. I, re I really appreciate your taking notes and checking them. We need to be accurate about these things because this is real fucking serious. Yes. Uh, there's the Naked Beach Frenzy clip from, I believe it's the 2006 DVD of Adult Party cartoon that has uh, John Kay and Katie Rice, who, uh, and, and I, who at this point she's over 18, but I do not believe they actually had a, 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 a physical relationship. I think there was a described instance of where John calls Katie on the phone yeah, and yeah, yeah. is performing an act on himself as he's listening to her speak. Um, yeah. But if, if I'm correct, I don't think they themselves had any romantic relationship, even though textbook grooming on his right. case. Like I said, I will... I'll drop some articles in the show notes so that uh, listeners can can have the most accurate information. But yeah, my understanding of it is that he engaged in a physical sexual relationship with uh, Robin Bird when she was underage, and with Katie Rice, it was uh, when she was underage. It was uh, confined to textbook grooming behaviors and uh, yeah, acts of phone sex. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this clip, uh, it's a cl it's a little under five minutes, it is a clearly uncomfortable Katie Rice um, off to the side as John describes um, her job on doing some artwork on Ren and Stimpy adult party cartoon. He keeps bringing up her ability uh, to draw, quote, sexy girls for the Naked Beach Party reboot, which, uh, you know, they were able to have more freedom with showing nudity on Spike TV. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the way he... The way he's describing... Um, her artwork, uh, it, it, you're seeing live grooming right there yeah. and trying to engage her in the conversation a little bit. Um, when she gives him certain answers, he kind of half repeats them in a way that I'm, that in, in my mind, it's like, you're not really listening. And, and, and it's just, he continues this conversation. He mentions that, uh, he met her on her 15th birthday and takes a second and he says, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, Ugh. kind of making... Uh, a joke about it. I've seen parts of this clip and he at one point says this is one of our young sexy female animators which is in inappropriate already on so many levels to talk about one of your employees that way let alone the the this the 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 childhood sexual abuse allegations. 100%. And he also ma he makes another joke um after she finished the, you know, the animation for the Naked Party cartoon, he says, oh, that, um, and after her working, you know, the guys on the animation network pretty much had to go to the bathroom after seeing her animations. And she <sighs> laughs it off uncomfortably. But that is a grooming tactic of trying to normalize that kind of um, sexualization, open, open sexualization, open talking. Um, and I'll bring up another person, uh, you know, not just, yeah, I'm going to bring up another person is Jeffrey Epstein, where right. in his mansion, when you enter, he has fully nude photos of naked girls, girls, mm -hmm. not women. They are all mm -hmm. clearly under 18. And that is a way to normalize 
this behavior, normalizing nudity, normalizing um, sexual themes while gaining the trust of that person. Um, So, and I, I, I was getting so angry just watching it. Just not only the fact that he thought it would be beneficial to him to bring uh, Katie back to make those jokes and also to have that be a special feature on a DVD, which it doesn't yeah. tell you anything. The, the The gist of what he has her on for is uh, she drew some naked girls on my animation block. And it seems to be all that she did, mm-hmm. which if that's the case, it's it sounds to me that her whole assignment was a grooming exercise of normalizing the ability to draw nipples and then making jokes about it. Um, And it's one thing to have one person describe these things, but when you have, um, when you have consistency of action and patterns of action with regards to abuse and grooming, that's a pretty strong indicator of veracity when you get to certain details. And I'm not going to get into the, certain details of his uh, alleged actions on uh, the two victims, but it's in the article if if you want to read it, but that specificity and also the ability to follow up with um, law enforcement in uh, certain and other crimes. Like for example, uh, the article also describes that he may have had um, child abuse images on his computer and he would show that to certain people again, Mm -hmm. as a way to normalize that behavior um, but later on, they try to have law enforcement involved. And in my head, it's if you have such descriptions of uh, such detailed descriptions, you have a consistency of pattern and you have someone willing to follow through to law enforcement and put their reputations in the mud to speak out against this one person. But you still hold a view of no, nah, they're probably just a troublemaker that wants money. Mm-hmm. I am hard pressed to find evidence to support that conclusion. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, so there's a, 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 one of my criticisms of happy, happy, joy, joy as a documentary is that it spends a very long time on, uh, the genius of John Kay. And, uh, it certainly alludes to, I mean, it, it, it does talk about what a difficult person he was to work for and sort of um, the issues inherent in his animation studio that led to his downfall, but it's not a very hard hitting look at it. It still seems to be pretty forgiving and broad colors and they get into the sexual allegations and maybe the the last 20 to 15 minutes uh, of the documentary. Um, And, uh, it's not a very effective 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, but w- w- one of the things that's interesting about it is that at one point, one of the animators, I believe it's Chris Riccardi, uh, says, you know, this wasn't this wasn't new because back when uh, Spumco was running Ren and Stimpy, back when we were all working with John, you know, if you'd get him drunk, he would talk about how young girls are just the hottest women are ever going to be. And to say that it that we thought it was just locker room talk isn't really an excuse. Uh, that doesn't make it okay. But we legitimately didn't think he was serious. And listen, a person who is willing to casually talk about their sexual attraction to children um, 
is grooming you as much as they're grooming the children because they want to they want to normalize it being okay for them to talk about it so that you will turn a blind eye the next time they do it and the next time they do it if uh they're testing they're testing you um it's it's a very common behavior yeah if you were and it's especially in a situation where so 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 another thing that needs to be said about John Kay was that he was a terrible uh, he he was a terrible and highly exacting boss um, I've been watching, uh, you, you talk about abducted in plain sight. Uh, I was watching this documentary in conversation with The Vow, which is HBO's current documentary on the Nexium cult. Uh, but talking, but if you think about John Kay and his animation studio and the way he gathered animators to him and then the way he sort of created this community around him in conversation with cult building, it's there was some very strong resonances and it's a uh, very... It's just very chilling. Um, it when you're dealing with a powerful, charismatic leader who uh, makes it impossible for you to lead a life outside of his sphere, your entire life becomes about the time you spend around them. It's even easier for them to groom you with their terrible behavior, and it becomes even harder for you to see through it. And it becomes much more important to be vigilant for this sort of thing. I, I, I'm going to turn to my notes for a sec, but uh, the the animators are quoted as calling John Kay uh, dictatorial, uh, sadistic. Uh, they would have nightmares. They would, you know, do like 18 hour days of animation. And the next day, John would say, this is shit. You didn't even try. Um, he would... There's one of the things that's so frustrating in this documentary is that they kind of walk right up to the line, but they never cross it because there will be a point where one of them would say, oh, yeah, John would bring us in for what he would call beatings. And then they don't actually tell you what a beating was. Um, My understanding is that it wasn't a physical beating. It was just like a verbal takedown if you didn't like your art. Uh, He and he's very much the dude who... um, as it's described, he's very much the dude who once he had success, because it's important to note that Ren and Stimpy was an overnight success. It was immediately a huge hit. And once he had that, uh, he became a monster. He just, there was no holding him back. Um, something that uh, is admirable, I guess, about this documentary is that it, it works hard not to take a side. It works hard to just present everybody's perspective and then move forward on it. But because most of the perspectives you hear from are the animators, it's still a very one-sided perspective. Uh, But something that I take away from it is that, you know, when John Kay is asked if he would do anything differently uh, regarding his departure from Ren and Stimpy, he says, no, there's nothing I could have done differently except to not accept the increased episode order. Uh, The only thing I could have done differently is to agree to do fewer episodes. It never occurs to him that, well, I could have delegated. Well, I could have let my artists do their job. Well, I could have put out episodes I was less than perfectly satisfied with because they were still great episodes, even if I didn't make them. And there's this sort of, ah, just this really fucking upsetting uh, arrogance to him that uh, just makes me want to throw a bottle at the wall. You know something, speaking of that arrogance, that also arrogance um, with people that do find success overnight and do become a celebrity, they sometimes may view themselves as untouchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
R. Kelly is a great example of that. There's mm-hmm. a documentary called Surviving R. Kelly that does a very good job of one, letting the victims speak, but mm-hmm. also describing um, the culture around him that sort of allowed him to get away with this. A, a lot of times, serial abusers, it's not just them doing it. They have a network of people that wittingly or unwittingly do support and allow this person to continue offending. And one of the qualities in someone that view, that may have a certain bit of arrogance or um, starts to view themselves as, as being able to get away with it is one, normal, normalizing the behavior, but there's also um, something called leakage where we start to see possibly in their work or in interviews, there's one episode that upon rewatching this a year, a couple years ago, the rubber nipples, rubber nipples, rubber nipple salesman episode, season two, episode one has this scene where, where they try and sell rubber nipples to Mr. Horse. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the funniest scene now. And as a kid, I didn't remember it because um, it's just so bizarre. And I think that's a good nugget of, the differences of season one and two when John K was on versus three and four, where we still have like this intensity, this, um, you know, energy and like characters get angry, but this scene is especially nefarious. Uh, and I wanted to say a couple lines from it. Is that, is that okay to do? Or do you want me to just give a brief description of the scene? Yeah, that's okay. Go for it. Okay. Um, so essentially this episode is Ren and Stimpy are rubber nipple salesmen. They go to the, to someone's door, they knock on it, has a ton of locks on it. And the door cracks open a little bit, and it's Mr. Horse. We don't see his whole face, but it's Mr. Horse, who's a frequent supporting character. And he asks, do I know you? And Ren says, I don't think so. Would you like to take a look at some fine rubber nipples? Did my wife send you? Ren, no, sir, but you look like someone who could really use some rubber nipples. Mr. Horse finally steps out. Classical music plays, and it's a shot from his hoofs up to his face. He has, like, he has rubber pantaloons. He has like a rubber cap that looks like udders. Maybe it's just giant rubber nipples or whatnot. And uh, and so Mr. Horse steps out. And Mr. Horse, who is voiced by John Kay, as John Kay, this is his voice. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Mr. Horse says, how do I know you're not from the FBI? Ren, sir, I can assure you we're only salesmen. Mr. Horse, all right, so I made a mistake. One mistake. Can't a man start over? Do I have to keep on paying? Huh? Maybe I should make another mistake. Maybe two more. So it's it gets very dark at this point. Ran and Stimpy are shaking. Ran is shaking and says, please, sir, I think one mistake is plenty. Just let me show you what's inside here. Mr. Horse throws his hands up and says, don't do it, man. I'm not armed. We really just want to sell you some rubber nipples. So he pulls out this rubber nipple. It's kind of a visual gag of Mr. Horse is like flinching at it, thinking that it's a gun, which, by the way, we just made reference to him being armed. Didn't catch right. that as a kid. Right. Um, so Mr. Horse says, oh, it is a nipple. <laughs> oh, what you must think of me. Forget everything I said. So then he says, I don't think I have any use for rubber nipples. I'll tell you what, though. Do you have any rubber walrus protectors? He reaches behind him, pulls out a walrus that he's holding by the top of its head, which is also attached to a rubber nipple cap. The last shot of this scene is the walrus looking you know into the camera slightly off and he says call the police the scene fades and we go to the next scene yeah so as a kid i'm not going to get the whole joke of why is this horse paranoid that these guys are the fbi it's a paranoid horse but upon rewatching this 
it makes me very uncomfortable that mm-hmm. that is included in a kid's show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that scene is directly alluded to on the documentary uh, by one of the animators as uh, Mr. Horse is a sexual predator. Um, it was like, it, if it was not explicitly discussed behind the scenes, it was uh, definitely something that everyone was aware of. Um, something is just, it, <sighs> There's a point at which in the John Kay seasons, the, the the show becomes very evidently sort of the regurgitations of a very troubled man. Um, and when I say troubled, like, I, I don't say that to be like, oh, poor troubled man, let's excuse everything that was awful about him. It's just a, a an adjective to define what was going on with him. Because uh, when he discusses using Kirk Douglas as a visual model for the... Uh, the expressions of his characters, he says, part of what I liked about Kirk Douglas is that he reminded me of my father, because when my father would get mad, he would do the same sort of like, you would just see his face just exploding and twisting with the, with the, 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 the attempt to hold in all of this rage that he was feeling at me for doing something stupid. And like John Kay goes on, like he's telling just an affable, charming uh, story from his childhood. And it becomes increasingly clear that he's discussing a deeply emotionally abusive man, uh, it's not clear whether or not his father was physically abusive, but it is clear that he had a really dysfunctional childhood with a father who was incapable of expressing affection or approval. Um, and uh, in fact, the episode that was that the, the band episode that uh, was the final straw that got J- John Kay fired is an episode called uh, Man's Best Friend, where... Ren and Stimpy are being trained by a dog trainer who's this extremely sinister human character that John Kay came up with called George Licker, who is just this this sadistic, uh, the sadistic, incomprehensible drill sergeant, like one moment extremely charming and affectionate and the next moment physically and emotionally deeply abusive dude. And John Kay just casually says, yeah, I, uh, you know, it, it just reminded me of my childhood, that guy, and like the incomprehensibility of, uh, of adults. And he alludes to at one point uh, uh, that like he got his sort of animator's eye because when he was a kid, like his dad would fly off the handle about things and he would just kind of turn off and distance himself from it and just examine what was going on on his dad's face and try to find it funny. He's like describing uh, some very classic uh, dissociative behaviors that are common in children of abuse who try to protect themselves by not feeling the emotional impact of other people's reactions to them. Uh, It's, you know, I I believe that like great art can come from pain and that great art and that art can be a great therapy for pain. But when you start using other people for it, uh, it becomes extremely dangerous, and there's a there's a a a, a, a very true in this interview with John Kay. There's a very troubling lack of self reflection. Um, that is, I don't know, just extremely extremely dangerous and problematic, and it it and uh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of like you you really. Once you know these things about who John Kay was behind the scenes, watching the show becomes so much more troubling. Uh, there's an episode that I watched, I think, this morning. Uh, I think it's called Stimpy's Fan Mail. 
And so, oh my god, the madness! That's one of my favorites as a kid. It's it was one of my favorites as a kid too. The premise is that like you know it's it's one of their meta referential uh, episodes, and I think that this certainly I I think that I think it, I'm safe in saying Ren and Stimpy was the forerunner of this sort of meta theatrical animation in this age of animation. In that sometimes you would see Ren and Stimpy reacting to being cartoon characters so they receive a bunch of fan mail one morning but it's all for stimpy and ren goes nuts because nobody loves him but stimpy gives him the important job of answering his fan mail for him and so ren is sitting there answering fan mail from these children uh and getting increasingly abusive as he goes and it was really funny as a kid and if you're an adult thinking about john Kay and the fan mail he got from katie rice and robin bird it's just horrifyingly upsetting it's just it uh it's it's the there's there's a whole lot of the artists in the art and it's really hard to it, there's there's just no separating them for me there's the the first letter's a boy the rest are girls and one of them is saying my boyfriend's not as sweet as you oh my god he just says i'm so stupid and that also made it a little disturbing for me and uh, also, John Kay was the voice of Ren for season one and two, and then it became Billy West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in the middle of it, there's, uh, you know, one of the, the Ren and Stimpy fake commercials, which are always so fun. But this is one for the Ren and Stimpy fan club. And like their new fan who they're inducing is this 15 year old girl. And she's drawn to be like this very, very physically mature physically mature uh big breasted girl uh and on the one hand it's a very clever meta theatrical writing that she's saying like i vow to only watch ren and stimpy until my eyes fall out and i will quote it in unwelcome social situations etc 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 and then like at the end of the induction ceremony they tell her to go and take her special seat as the fan and next you see her on all fours with ren on top of her just it makes my skin crawl in light of all this context and ren says at the end of that scene remember tell anyone what you've seen here and i'll rip your tonsils out oh god oh no part of this show going back and rewatching it feels like a show for kids uh at all uh, it and I mean, there's an argument to be made that, well, shows for children shouldn't talk down to kids. And that's certainly true. And shows for kids should introduce uh, themes that we commonly think are too complicated for children because children are smarter than we give them credit for. And it's a way to introduce these things. But like the, the sense of humor and the themes that Ren and Stimpy are playing on, um, there's just there's I watched... I think it's in I think it's in Stimpy's fan mail, the episode where where Ren has this dark night of the soul where he's going to kill Stimpy. And not only is the animation itself just physically terrifying, but with the sound editing, yeah, he has these giant man hands that he's like he's going Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart out of his mind over his desire to kill Stimpy. And it's so extended and so intense. And like this is a show that animates madness so disturbingly and so specifically uh this is this is a show that knows how to animate a psychotic break in such a way that you feel like you are going to have it uh and it's not like i'm amazed this show didn't give me nightmares as a kid um 
Emma Bren says, how easily I could end the farce with these hands, these dirty hands. And with these oh hands, God. I hold the fate of millions. He's a god, but he's as mortal as me. Just one quick twist and it's over. Just one. It's very specific. It's a far cry from that to like Pinky and the brain, brain saying, I'm going to have to hurt you. Ha 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 ha. That's very funny. Like the end. I, yeah, I don't. And I, I, listen, I'm a huge fan of adult animation. Uh, I, I like Rick and Morty, problematic as hell, and I really enjoy it. Uh, I fucking love the the era of adult animation. This was a show on a kids network for kids, and I think it. Oh, I've just I've I've got huge problems. I I feel like we have only just scratched the surface, and there is so much more to be dug into. But uh, we're going to need to wrap up soon. So so to to bring us into the home stretch, Nate. In context of some of the things we've talked about and all of the other problems we haven't yet had time to get into. Where are you in your relationship with Ren and Stimpy now? Is it still something that brings you joy? I found a quote uh, that Robin Bird uh, says from the article, and I think it sums up my feelings pretty succinctly about the show. I don't want to watch it. There's nice people that you can hire. There's nice people who can make things. There's nice people who make cartoons. They're just as fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Ren and Stimpy, you know, I had not missed it in the time since I haven't watched it uh, up until rewatching it for this show. And, and having watched it now, I am excited to not have to watch any more this evening. I, I like it. It, uh, it certainly a. A, a, a fixed point in the timeline of animation history and it opened the door to a lot of really great things. I would really rather watch those really great things. Ugh. Nate, uh, thank you so much for bringing this on. I can't imagine having half as much fun talking about this with anybody else. Uh, if uh, listeners want to find more of you and what you do out in the world, where should they look? Uh, my website is natebetancourt.actor. You can find me on Instagram at nate underscore no underscore chaser. Um, I have a short film called Clean Cut that should be coming out next year. It's a horror short directed by my buddy Dylan James Amick and stars Matthew Schott and myself. It's the first horror short I've ever done. I'm very proud of it. Um, and I think during the month of October, just so I can have fun with my own personal madness, my goal is to, uh, once a week, do an Instagram live read of um, scary stories to tell in the dark. I want to <gasps> set up candles. I want to oh. set up mood lighting. <gasps> I want to get spooky. I'm trying to get spooky. Yes. Uh, I've already started decorating. I've got my Halloween kitchen towels. Um, I <laughs> am trying to get spooky. Bring spooky season inside because we might not be able to go outside for it. And uh, as always, you can find this podcast uh, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cringe Benefits. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild. Um, that is our show. Uh, it was a pretty fucking awesome one, if I do say so myself. Uh, we'll be back next week with another childhood favorite that's become a grown-up regret. Thanks. Bye.